0: Can you guys hear my dog drinking water? No. Oh, good. It's like right behind me. (laughs) I assumed
1: assumed that was you. I boy, that's good whiskey.
0: (laughs) Welcome to The Whiskey Topic. My name is Mark Bylock.
2: And I'm Jamie Johnson.
0: And today's topic is Canadian whiskey. Now, Jamie, we know somebody that knows a lot about Canadian whiskey, don't we?
2: We sure we sure do. It's definitely not me.
0: It is, however, uh, Davin from the, the author of the Canadian whiskey book, The Portable Expert. Now, we were lucky enough to have Davin on the line. Davin, how's how's it going?
1: It's just going really well, Mark, Jamie. <laughs> yeah. Sitting here with a couple of drams of Canadian whiskey and uh, ready to, raring to get going. Oh,
2: this is great. This is great. I mean, what else could you want on an afternoon? (laughs) Chatting about whiskey, having a drink. It's like, you know, it's a dream come true. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. And as as with every show, we have one whiskey, whiskey each. Sometimes we go to two, depending how long the show goes. Um, so um, Jamie, I, I I was like, Jamie, you need a Canadian whiskey. So what did you, you, you procured a Canadian whiskey before the it show? Did.
2: I ran out and got one. Was, shamefully, I didn't have any in the house. Um, but I grabbed a bottle of that uh, Canadian Club, the 100% rye, because um, I've had it before, and I really enjoyed it. Um, now it's my first pour out of the bottle, so... You know, I'm trying to make a little dent in it so that I can really tell you what it's like, but it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, I really like this rye. I've actually given it as a gift to someone, um, in the States who's a big whiskey guy and he's a, he's a bourbon lover and, um, he was a little nervous because a hundred percent rye isn't, you know, it's not exactly the easiest sort of grain to work with. And it, you can, you can screw up rye pretty great. So, um, He tried it, and I was so nervous because I didn't even try it before I gave it to him. Like, what idiot? And he loved it. So I was like, yes, excellent. So he was very nice and gracious, and and he really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm really enjoying it too. I'm I'm finding it has that great balance with that spice and uh, a little touch of sweetness. I'm I'm a big fan.
0: Now, uh, Devon, before we introduce your drink, Jamie made a great point. Um, do you buy into this? Because I, I do. I, I do that. The first pour of the bottle is usually not the best pour of the bottle. Like I've, I've always, when I started buying whiskey early on, my first pour was always kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's okay. And then it's usually when that liquid goes kind of below the neck that I really start feeling the whiskey opens up. Do you uh, do you buy into this? Because I don't know if there's any science behind it. I just know <laughs> that it's a thing.
1: I don't know if there's any science behind it either. Um, but I do know that uh, some whiskeys are much better at when the bottle's Getting down a little bit, uh, you know, I'd be happy to pour most whiskey straight out of the, you know, the first dram would be good. You take something like Forty Creek Evolution though, and that becomes an entirely different bottle when about a third of the whiskey is gone. It really interacts with the with the air, and it really evolves in the bottle. So it depends on the whiskey. I, I don't know I like the the smell you get when you pour the first the first dram, but uh, uh, I can see what you're saying. I, I, it's not something I've really thought about, except for you know a few whiskeys that get better. Like some Islas get much better as they go down, and then they get terrible when they get towards terrible. the bottom. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a pure-feated whiskey drinker. You don't, you don't want that Islas that is staying around for too long uh, yeah. once it gets near the bottom. Um, yeah, I find that. I always found the whiskey, the first pour, a little like tight, a little like like it's just too condensed. And I, f- I find generally, not always, but generally... Uh, second, third pour, it starts to loosen up and it has like more character. Um, but again, I, I don't. I mean, I guess maybe a little bit extra oxidization or whatever in the bottle or the little bit that takes place. Um, I don't know if that makes a difference, but I, I do find that um, that happens. Um, so, Devin, uh, what are you drinking today? I figure you've got a pretty interesting Canadian whiskey. Yeah,
1: I've got a good. I've got a good collection of, of whiskeys from all all around the world, um, and I pulled out two and I've poured a dram of each. The first one is. Um, Forty Creek Three Grain. It's a whiskey that hasn't been on the market for a while. I think it's a really outstandingly great whiskey. It's rich in you know nutty barley notes, and it's also got a fair bit of rye in there, and it's got a lot of body, so you can tell he's used a bit of corn in that as well. The other one I've got in front of me is a whiskey from Highwood Distillers uh, in Alberta. It's called Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt Rye. And uh, it, the, the label says, Tie Everything Down. So uh, we'll just have to see how that goes. I tried it uh, a little while ago, and uh, I quite enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm going to try it again now. So, uh, But if we're talking about the first dram from the bottle, can we go back to Jamie's Canadian Club 100% Rye? Because I was blown over when I opened that bottle for the first time it is so fruity and it, mm-hmm. to me to me, this smells like Canadian Club and I really I really liked it from right from the beginning I have to admit I've probably gone through not quite a case of that but a lot of bottles of Canadian Club 100% rye bottles that I paid for by the way yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. They, they, they I was... can see why yeah. yeah, absolutely, I um, I think the, and you had a hand in picking out the 100% rye, is that correct Ivan? I believe you were involved in the selection process of a flavor profile.
1: Apparently I was, I certainly wasn't <laughs> aware of it at the time, but um, uh, I got a, a note from them once saying, uh, how would you feel about uh, visiting our lab, so I and tasted some whiskey, so I did, I, <laughs> And uh, we tasted a whole bunch of whiskeys, and we just talked about them. We didn't, uh, you know, there was no keeping notes and scores and things like that. We just talked about these different whiskeys. And uh, some of them were, were, uh, a lot of them were 100% rye whiskeys. A few of them were some whiskeys that I had already tasted and written notes on and things like that. And uh, then uh, afterwards they said, uh, oh, uh, (laughs) we were were trying to choose them whiskey to to bottle 100% rye whiskey to bottle thanks for your input so um, I think they didn't want they didn't want to influence me and they didn't want to put any pressure on me and it was really fun because there were six of us just sitting around the table just drinking whiskey and talking you know oh I like that oh I don't like that and and, you know and various things and we were like really being quite candid uh, about this uh, this so there were six guys from the plant and then there was me and I guess they were writing down everything I said.
2: Wow, <laughs> it's, that's very cool. Well, it's that's pretty, very cool.
1: It's pretty darn flattering the way the whiskey turned out, too. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I really, genuinely like it. And the, the price is shocking. It's just so inexpensive. It's so so affordable, you know. I like it. Anyway, so the whiskeys I've got are Thunderbolt Rye and Sporty Creek
2: three grain. Excellent. What are you drinking, Mark?
0: Well, so I'm drinking, uh, which both of you know probably is my my favorite Canadian rye, uh, though bottled in the U.S., Um, the Masterson's uh, 10-year-old straight rye from Alberta and uh, bottled by a Californian company in, I believe it's bottled by California. Is that correct? I think so.
1: Yeah, it's bottled in California.
0: Yeah. Uh for me, um, you know, Alberta just makes the Silly there just makes such such fantastic ryes. Um I like mo oakier, um older ryes. I like the uh like like the flavor. I like the that rye flavor a little masked a little bit, but I still like that. That uh, and I like I like the low so I guess I like the that that sweeter side of it as well. But I find that the rye just balances it out beautifully. Uh, great drink. Um, this is one of my drinks that I, I really go to, and I, I've said this before. Uh, probably not on the podcast, but I said this. This is like the drink I like four out of five times. Like I love it three out of five times. I like it one out of five times, and then one out of five times I just I just don't like it. And I finally figured out why. I just I just don't like this drink very warm. So if it's warm in the house, it's like a summer day, and the windows are open, and the temperature of the house is generally warmer. I find the the whiskey starts to lose that that rod just gets overpowering, starts to lose that character that I enjoy about it, so I like it you know at room temperature is I guess the thing, but if at that point it's it's uh, one of my favorite whiskeys. um I've hoarded a lot of bottles of this one in particular because it's uh it's a limited it's a, always a this is batch number five so there's limited number of batches and you never know what you're gonna get um and it tastes a lot like whistling pig, I realized so which comes from the same distillery, so there you go. But uh, but I guess if if you're in the United States and you can't get Masterson's uh, Whistling Pig uh, Rye is uh, I would say almost as good around the same, it comes from the same distillery, uh, just aged in a different place briefly.
1: Well, there are are four of those whiskeys and of course you're not allowed to say what distillery they come from, but you look at the Jefferson's Rye, you look at Whistle Pig, Look at Lock, Stock, and Barrel, and Mastersons, and uh, they all have a very similar profile, and it's a similar background, uh, but uh, for my money, I like the Mastersons far and away the best. It's got all the elements of great rye whiskey, the spiciness is so punchy. Though It's got a lot of wood in it, but the wood is controlled, but what I like about it is it's, it's so beautifully blended together because of course they take a number of different casks and bring and bring them together and those guys you know they they even the water they use to bring it down to 50%, they use a little bit of this kind of water and a little bit of this. They're, they're wine blenders, you know. Their, their business is wine. They just do this sort of for, as a side project. And it's 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 so masterful, the way they have put this whiskey Mastersons, yeah. The way they put th- this whiskey together. It's like the cognac blenders, you know. The way they'll just take forever to dilute cognac. You know, a li- add a little bit of water, then let it all equilibrate, then add a little bit more. And but i've learned this afterwards but of those that's the one that to me tastes the most like they've put some thought into making a really fantastic uh, drinking whiskey i really like that if you've tasted their wheat whiskey and their barley whiskey those are two really fantastic whiskeys as well the barley whiskey is especially good but honestly it takes a while for some people to warm up to it but it's really outstanding so yeah i think masterson's really leads the pack on uh, on those
0: whiskies yeah, and i I have a deep respect for um their their just and the bottling and the presentation like it's just it's a complete package mm-hmm. um, yeah. um you don't want to you know sometimes you don't want you, you want to pour a whiskey for guests that has an impressive bottle and you want to pour them a good whiskey. Um, that sometimes gets a narrowly, you know, narrows down on how much whiskey you can pour, but uh, <laughs> uh, great looking bottle and, um, and just a fantastic whiskey that I've uh, generally have had very good results with pouring for others. Um, yeah, absolutely.
2: How available is it here? Because I don't see it every time I go shopping. So is it uh, tricky to get a hold on in Ontario, the Mastersons?
1: I don't know. Uh, um, I mean, if it's, they would certainly make it available availability of any whiskey in ontario relies 125 percent on the lcbo if the lcbo doesn't want to sell it it's not here that's why we have such such bad selection of whiskey in ontario but uh, i know the the distributors in nova scotia and they are they've had it in ontario a few times but i i don't know that you know it's not a whiskey i think it appeals to wine buyers
0: yeah, it's, um, it looks like there's a couple of bottles left. Um, there's more of the barley uh, right now because that was introduced recently. In the United States, it's not generally available at um, at liquor stores because it, it is intended to be kind of like a mo- more boutique wine. Hey, you're buying wine. Here, have some whiskey. Um, so it is, you know, it is in that, that category. I've, but I have seen the Mastersons in the United States as well. Uh, last time I was there, so it's it's around. It's it's not un, it's not like highly unavailable. It's just um, it, it is a little harder to find.
2: So, I mean, let's talk about Canadian whiskey because I feel like it gets such a bad like I am shamefully um, sort of not up and up on my Canadian whiskey. So I guess. I guess my like first kind of question is, what's the biggest like misconception about Canadian whiskey? What is that thing that happens when, you know, people talk about, oh, it's can it's Canadian that sort of thing? What? Why is that? What? What's going on?
1: Well, I can only speculate why. I would I think a, a good part of it is marketing, uh, is the marketing people who are trying to sell other kinds of whiskey because. Canadian whiskey is still by far the best-selling whiskey in North America. We outsell everything else. And I think that that kind of annoys the people who are trying to sell scotch or bourbon or whatever. Um, So, you know, when people say Canadian whiskey is light, it's got this reputation for being light. Well, you know, there are an awful lot of light scotches. Cutty Sark. J&B. There are an awful lot of light American whiskeys. There are in an infinite number of light Irish whiskeys and so on. The thing is, when people talk about American whiskey, they talk about bourbon. When people talk about Scotch whiskey, they talk about single malts. These are just a tiny little part of the market. But when people talk about Canadian whiskey, they don't differentiate and we haven't differentiated the, the connoisseur quality whiskeys from you know, the, the ones that you know, uh, really are the bread and butter of Canadian whiskey. <clears throat> but when you you look at, at how much whiskey we sell, people the other day, someone the other day asked me, how come Canadian whiskey has such a bad reputation? And I said, I think you'd have a very hard time convincing the people who sell Canadian whiskey that it has a bad reputation because it outsells everything else they've got in their shops. So uh, uh, I think that maybe there, uh, to some degree, the you know, people who have got into the single malts have had some disdain for every other kind of whiskey included including blended scotches and this is based i think a lot on just not knowing and and now you know bourbon is very hot now and of course that it should be it's so some of these these new bourbons are so fantastic it's unbelievable and again people seem to want to select a certain kind of whiskey and say that theirs is the best because that says something about them and everything else is not quite as good now. Canadian whiskey went through a long period when we were making light whiskey, and when, and when that's what why people wanted it. But there's also the the fact that Canadian whiskey is made a little bit differently. There are you know two whiskey streams. There's the the real rich, powerful whiskey that we call flavoring whiskey, and then there's the base whiskey. And the base whiskey we distill to a fairly high uh, ABV. So and with that, the purpose for doing that is to remove all the fusel oils. So then, then you bring it back down with water, and you get a whiskey that is a little is a lot lighter because it doesn't have the stuff that gives you headaches in it anymore. And and then they blend these two together. You know, the 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 whiskey that's made from the high ABV spirit and the whiskey that's made from the low ABV spirit, ABV spirit, and this gives a whiskey that is maybe a little bit unfamiliar especially to bourbon drinkers. I mean, bourbon, there are a lot of congeners in bourbon that really are, you know, fairly harmful. But you, you never drink enough that they hurt you. But in Canadian whiskey, we've, we've tried to take out a lot of, the, of those the fusel oils, especially amyl alcohol and things like this. And uh, so, and I think a lot of people, they want their whiskey to be the best. And a lot of people, they just, they don't want to, to learn about other kinds of whiskey. So, I don't know, if you're like me, and, you, and the first... Canadian whiskeys that you tried were the cheapest ones you could get, then you would say Canadian whiskey's not that great. But if you did the same thing to Scotch and tried, and the the only scotches you drank were the cheapest ones you could get, you'd think Scotch was no good either. And the same with American whiskey. If you only bought the bottom shelf American whiskeys, you wouldn't like whiskey. So it's kind of a, 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 an unfair comparison, c- uh, comparing Canadian whiskey writ large to this tiny little portion of the American whiskey market, straight bourbon, or this tiny little portion of the Scotch market, uh, single malt Scotch. So I think it's uh, it, 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 it's it's comparing different things, really.
0: Yeah, Devon, I think you made a that's that's a great point with uh, with that regard because um, you're right. Uh, the the first sip, I mean, this tequila has the same problem, right? Because chances all are when we were young, we all had really bad tequila, and then we've you know categorically said tequila is a bad drink and then you get into higher end uh tequilas where it is more of a craft where it is more of a si- you know science behind it um and i think if you compare it to american whiskey um i guess canadian whiskey, canadian whiskey is more about the that blending process towards the end because they have uh, different whiskeys that have been distilled at different levels, uh, aged at different, whether new or, or old oaks. There's a lot more that happens before bottling, Whereas in American whiskey, you distill it. It's basically the same mash bill number one or mash bill number two or your rye mash bill. Um, you barrel it, and then you work on the conditions of the warehouse to define how that whiskey is going to taste. In Canadian whiskey, it more happens... Before bottling, um, after the barrels get uh, after the whiskey comes out of the barrel, I, is, I guess a good way of saying it, right.
1: Uh, actually, that's <laughs> you said two things that really are, are you said two things that I really want to remember and, and tell people later. The tequila thing, you're right. I've had terrible tequila. I've had some tequila that's so awesomely good, it's it's unbelievable. And you know, it, so so yes, you're right. Get whatever you're drinking, whatever you start out drinking, get the good stuff. Now, with Canadian whiskey, I think there's a misconception about blending because all single malts are blended unless they are single barrel, single malts or single cask, I guess they call it in Scotland, single malts. And when they blend uh, a single malt whiskey, there is a formula. There's a recipe. It's not just throwing a whole bunch of barrels together. It's so many of this kind of barrel, so many of this age of whiskey, so many of this kind of barrel. So there are real recipes for making those single malts that you buy. And if you'll notice from year after year after year, these malts generally taste pretty much the same because they do use that recipe. And they'll alter it a little bit from one year to the next because each year the grain gives a slightly different t- flavor to the uh, to the whiskey so the, the, there's that it 's the same with bourbon. bourbon is all blended whiskey they They take so many barrels from this part of the warehouse, so many barrels from this part so and this and so on, and again it 's done with a recipe and they taste them to make sure that you know if this if they had a really hot summer then the, the older whiskey will taste different and so on so they or pardon me the, the higher the whiskey higher in the in the warehouse will taste different so these are blended as well now Canadian whiskey uh, we talk about it as being blended. This is really the American definition of blending, because most Canadian whiskeys—it's—it's it's really done the same way as single malt Scotch or bourbon. The, the distillery makes whiskeys, and they—but but, it's—it's all one distillery, generally putting them through the same stills. They make just. Whiskey that's got nothing but rye in it, or almost nothing but rye. They make whiskey that's mostly wheat, whiskey that's mostly corn, and you know, and whiskey that's mostly barley. And they and then they they age these separately in different kinds of wood, so they can eat, emphasize the grain flavors uh, of the individual grains and and get the best interaction with the best type of wood. And then they bring them together at the end. So the Americans blend the grains before they put it into the to the mash and the canadians blend the grains after its mature whiskey generally with canadian whiskey all of the different components of the whiskey are all made by the same distiller the same people in the same distillery so it's really you know because they use different the grains uh, mature the grain whiskey separately they call it they say they're blending it and putting together the the uh the uh, americans call it batching because somehow they you know blending is supposed to be a bad thing but in canada we try to control the different elements and, and let each one reach its peak before we bring the fl all the different flavors together so i like to call them single distillery whiskies if you look in dave broom's uh, world Atlas of the whiskey he talks about single distillery whiskies in fact if you any of the recent uh books uh, from the top writers talk about canadian whiskey as single distillery whiskey because it's really no different than single malt except it uses different grains and it's really no different from from bourbon in that both bourbon and canadian whiskey uses a mixture of grains we just they blend before uh, distillation we blend after
2: it's so funny because for some reason in my head i'm i i think about canadian whiskey and i think about like flavoring um and when you're telling me about distilling you know each of the grains separately and aging them separately i don't hear any of of that which makes me think that you sort of you have these like you said the bread and butter sort of whiskies that have really sort of skewed what (laughs) are like thoughts about Canadian whiskey and I always think well bourbon it's you know there's all these rules around it Um, you know it has to be new oak it has to you know no flavoring added no coloring added whatever and I've just got this notion that Canadian whiskey kind of adds flavor we're allowed to add flavoring so why wouldn't you add flavoring and and it seems like that maybe isn't as common or sort of not as uh, prevalent as maybe i think it is is that fair
1: oh well uh, jamie i love that (laughs) first of all because there are two misconceptions there first of all straight bourbon you cannot add flavoring but in American whiskey, you can add flavoring, and they generally do add flavoring, and they use artificial flavorings. They use any kind of flavoring at all, and most of them, you do take a look at Templeton Rye. They talk about their their uh, their uh, the proprietary flavoring that they add to make that rye taste the way it does, and you know. But you know, so, so yes, they use flavoring in Canada. We we ha- have a whiskey that we call flavoring whiskey. It's really it's bourbon or it's 100% rye, or it's 100% wheat whiskey, or 100% corn whiskey, or something like that. So that, we introduce the word flavoring, and then people automatically start thinking of all these wild, artificial flavors. However, in Canada, we can add some uh, non-whiskey spirits. So we can add a small amount of cognac. We rarely do, but we could. We can add a small amount of sherry. We rarely add sherry sometimes we will add paxaret, which is a a a distillation of sherry and but whatever we add it has to be a spirit and it has to be aged for at least two years in in wood so it's a little bit different than than people's general conception they hear the word flavoring and they think kool-aid or something like this you know but that's yeah like i
2: picture like a vat of syrup like or (laughs) something like that that's what i think yeah
1: (laughs) but well i know there there might be something like some places have used a very tiny amount of prune wine. Prune wine uh, does add some, some uh, chemicals to the spirit, like sotalon, which really makes the whiskey taste old. But, you know, what most people don't know is that Scotch single-malt whiskey routinely, almost without exception until 1990, was routinely flavored with paxaret. They would add about a, a cup of paxaret to the barrel before they called it reconditioning the barrel. But really, they were just throwing flavoring in, to, and then they would uh, they would put the spirit in, and so that spirit would be would taste mature in a matter of weeks. Of course, they wouldn't mature forever. And as we know, the number on the label is the age of the youngest whiskey in there. So even today, some of these old paxaret laced whiskies are being added to single malts to keep the the, the flavor up. So. Uh, it, it it's kind of, it's really quite complicated when you get into this, you realize that there are so many things that people do to flavor the whiskey to add extrinsic flavor to the whiskey right now in in single malt, they use wine casks but people most people don't know or or actually they they choose not to believe is that there are six or seven liters of wine soaked into the to the staves of a dry Wine cask. A dry wine cask will have six or seven liters of wine in it. This is called in-drink wine. In-drink wine. You put the alcohol in there, and this stuff comes out. And I'm telling you, it doesn't take a matter of days before you've got lots of rich color in that, and so and you bring all this and you bring all this flavor out of the wood. And it's really it's just adding wine. You put it on a you know, do a chemical analysis. Of it, it's going to say that's got wine in it. It doesn't say whiskey. though That's wine. And uh, so there's a lot of things that that, that, uh, go on behind the scenes. And it's not that they're trying to trick us or fool us or deceive us. It's just that when you get down to the marketing people, they really, they have to have a simple story to tell. They have to have a simple story because... there's that one percent of people out there who will just keep hammering and hammering away because they just don't understand so they give them a simple story and they and that that keeps most people happy so making whiskey i mean we hear about these three ingredients And that's first of all, yeast is not an ingredient. There is zero yeast in whiskey. There's lots of of, uh, chemicals in whiskey that are produced by yeast, but that's no different than the things that are produced by the still. The yeast is a processor, just as the still is a processor, but the yeast is 100% of all of the yeast is removed during distillation. And so uh, they they come up with these stories that are easy for people to understand. And they're frankly, they're, they're as much as almost anybody wants to know. But if you really then start, you know, scratching away at it, picking away at it, there are lots of things about whiskey that we just, we would never know if we didn't ask. So flavoring, no, we don't add uh, we don't add uh, artificial flavors to Canadian whiskey. We will add flavoring whiskey that we make in that same distillery. We will add some foreign spirits. Part of this is because we get a huge tax break if we add American spirit to Canadian whiskey. The tax break comes because there were some spirits producers in the States who were really suffering badly and so the American government said if you add some American spirit we will give you a big tax break we still do it an example is orange wine orange wine, which by the way tastes like neutral spirit it's distilled um, you know when the orange crops failed in Florida they had you know tons millions of tons of oranges and that they couldn't sell because they looked ugly they made spirit out of it they got the Canadians to buy it it has no flavor they add it to their whiskey and the americans give them a big tax break but this stuff is it's expensive to do this and they don't do this with the high quality whiskeys. they only do this with the bottom shelf whiskeys. if you're shipping two tanker loads a week of Canadian whiskey to the States, you can afford to do this. And and the tax breaks are enough to make it worth your while. But for the low volume whiskeys, the whiskey that's only selling five or six thousand cases a year, it's there's no point in, in in doing this. It just adds another expensive step. So there are many, many misconceptions about how Canadian whiskey is made. Most Canadian whiskey is made just as you would imagine, scotch is made or bourbon is made or whatever. It comes into the distill one distillery produces all the components, puts them together, makes a whiskey, and ships it out. That's that's far and away the the, uh, the the most common way.
0: Yeah, I I struggled a lot with this while writing the whiskey cabinet because it was a tough topic to cover. Um, mostly because a lot of the focus of my book ended up being how different rules either cultural sets either that laws that are brought about through through culture and history or um rules based on you know marketing how these laws and the cultural aspect of these laws affect the final outcome of the whiskey and in you know a lot of ways you know whiskey when it first started out was really more like gin it was really distilled and then people would add Herbs and other flavoring to the whiskey to make it taste better because it was essentially out of the still, barely aged, and they needed to flavor it somehow. Uh, and then we got into barrel aging, and that became, you know, another step in the evolution of what whiskey is today. Um, I think that those are great points. Of you know, if I could just summarize that, that's a great point. With Scotch, you don't have um, a legal way of inserting wine or sherry into the bottle. But when you do age scotch in, or you finish scotch in sherry casks or in wine casks, you are adding wine to the bottle. It's just that it's going to get there. It's a little more romanticized. It's not, you know, you're not just like pouring it in and done. Uh, it's just more romanticized. You're like, oh, it's aged in three three months, uh, and, you know, it takes in those wine flavors. Um... And I think, you know, there's a lot of great ways of doing it. I think there's a lot of great scotches that are finished in, in other types of barrels that do a really great job. And then I think there's barrels that scotches that that really just wanna hey, I wanna make this scotch with cheap American oak but I also wanna Uh, that's been reused often but now i want to just add some flavor so i'm just going to put it in a wine cask and it's going to be a darker deeper redder color and it's going to be a little sweeter and a little more um a little more marketable a little more sellable um so that that's definitely a big thing and then yeah you go to american the american whiskey industry um unless it says straight something like rye or bourbon on that barrel um you can literally add syrup like two and a half percent of rye and there's such a thing an industry called rye flavor where they'll just take uh, something very similar to what Davin said. It was uh, like a very high proof whiskey um, that's relatively clean, and they'll add flavoring of rye, and then they'll bottle in a cool bottle, and they'll say, "Hey, here's your rye," and you're going to pay sixty bucks for it. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I mean, that's just kind of the, the dark side of the industry in in some respects. But I think uh, when I was doing when I was writing the book, I came to the conclusion that you know, Canadian whiskey, um, we the the additives that have been done in Canada are well thought out. So I guess an example is uh, if you buy one of those uh, American bourbons that have had flavoring added to them, it doesn't quite taste like whiskey. It just doesn't. And uh, we'll, we'll have a future show about this because I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And, uh, but it just doesn't taste like whiskey. It tastes like something slightly different. Um, whereas Canadian whiskey, uh, by law, has to taste like whiskey. The, the nice thing is the Canadian law says um, blah, 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 do stuff, this, that, and the other thing must taste like whiskey which I think is, uh, you know, and, and that's a good good thing, right? It, it, we're not, not tasting a fake product, I guess is what I want. I,
1: I think it's a good thing, too. I, sometimes I get a little bit uh, exasperated with all these laws because people think these laws are somehow there to make the whiskey better, and these laws have nothing to do with making good whiskey, nothing. The quality of the whiskey isn't even considered when they're making up these laws half the time. Now, Canada was the very first country in the world to have a law requiring that whiskey be aged. And the reason they put this law in place was so they could drive the nuisance distillers out of business. The nuisance distillers were the small distillers who weren't really that good about paying their taxes. So they realized if we make them age the whiskey the whiskey's going to get some colors if we see somebody selling white whiskey we know they haven't paid their taxes. This is the case. Then I remember it was about 25 years later the Scots wrote to our minister of finance to find out about this this um, aging law there was never ever ever i read all the correspondence back and forth between the two of them there was never a mention of the quality of the whiskey the only thing that they talked about and canada was quite happy to say that this really boosted their tax revenues because they were now able to control uh, or to know where the whiskey was being made how much was being made and they were able to get their full taxes now people talk about all these laws they have in the united states about making whiskey These laws were passed by politicians for rules that have nothing to do with whiskey. We have laws that say you have to use new oak because a politician was courting the lumber industry. That's the only reason it's there. It has nothing to do with making good whiskey. We have laws that say it has to be 51% something. I don't know where this magic number 51% came from, except that somebody said if we want the corn farmers to vote for us we'll have to give say that 51% of bourbon must be corn so then people said oh 51% this is some big magic number so now 51% of wheat straight wheat whiskey has to be straight whiskey straight wheat whiskey has to be at least 51% wheat sorry guys if it's if it's straight wheat whiskey and you've got other grains in there, you're not even going to taste the wheat till you get up around 80%. So it's meaningless to say 51%. But the killer is this. If it's 51% malted barley in the United States, you can call it single malt whiskey. So the, an American single malt can be made with corn, wheat, rye, whatever. If it's 51% malted barley, it's a single malt whiskey. So these rules are not made to help the whiskey drinker. But the marketing people get these, and it's like making the best of a bad thing. They, make, they take these rules, and they say, somehow this makes our whiskey better. Let's say this makes our whiskey better. Let's think of ways that we could say that. They come up with all these brilliant ideas, and the next thing, you know what? It, it, it enters the lore, and before long, it's fact. But the reality is these rules are not made to help the whiskey industry or the whiskey drinker. They're made just to help politicians either get more money or more votes. It's as simple as that.
0: When we talk about terroir about whiskey, we I, I like using that term because, you know, a lot of my wine friends love using terroir. They're like, Oh, you know, this has been this wine grape the wine grapes have been grown on the hill on the south side with the eastern wind or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um our version of terroir in the whiskey world is really the history and the laws and the politics in a lot of ways. And you make a great point. But in, a, in an interesting way, this does, in, in American U.S. whiskey, uh, it does isolate flavor if, of the whiskey. So in Scotland, we have single malt scotch, you have blended scotch, and you're going to have two different flavors because of the different grains used and the different quality control and that kind of thing. In the U.S., um, a lot there's so much politics behind why it's 51% grain and New oak. I, I absolutely agreed it does restrict the the makers, if you want to call it straight bourbon or just bourbon, it does restrict what they can create. But on the other hand, they're producing really fantastic whiskey within the confines of the law. Canada is such an interesting place because there are so few rules here, and yet the rules in some ways are stricter than, let's say, US whiskey, not as strict as straight bourbon, and yet um, somewhere in the middle, but it allows for a lot of creativity. and. It makes sense because Canada had this – there's a rich uh, history of making whiskey in Canada and of the ways we've made whiskey, and there's a lot of positives to every country defining it differently. I think when I was doing research for the Whiskey Cabinet, I, what I conclusion I came to is like there's some BS behind all these rules, and there's maybe some BS behind disclosure because personally, I would just love more disclosure. I would love to have more disclosure on the bottle, um, and – Every time I approach anybody in the industry and say, "So why don't you like include the fact that you add sherry or you go to America? Why don't you include that you add, you know, rye flavoring to the bottle?" The answer is always the same. Well, the consumer won't understand. So I don't like that answer. I think it's a bad answer. Um, but I, but that's the answer because the consumer won't understand. Fine. But there's also a lot of good that comes from this, as far as um, you know, in the states, New York, high proof bourbons. Probably would not have New York high proof bourbons if it wasn't for those laws. In Canada, we really have such a diverse range of whiskeys that um, are hard to explore. Uh, some of our best whiskeys sell out really quickly. They come up and they disappear. They're sold out. Um, you really had it like when Alberta launched the Alberta Premium twenty five and thirty year old whiskeys. Americans drove up the uh, drove up past you know into the Canadian board ju- into Alberta just to get that whiskey because it cost eighty dollars or fifty dollars fifty dollars. $50 and there is an efficiency and a che- like there's an efficiency in the way Canadian makes whiskey that makes it a little bit cheaper um because um you know you don't have the same complexity they do in the United States with where the barrels are aged and how it's aged and you know how what kind of whiskey they they have mash bill number 1 and they have to know how many mash bill number 1 bourbons in this area they're going to sell Uh, in eight years. Whereas in Canada, there's really this more authentic aging process where those barrels will sustain a longer life. So I think with Canadian whiskey, um, Davin, if you were to... So somebody's brand new to Canadian whiskey and keeping in mind, you know, both an American and Canadian audience, um, and they wanted the kind of, you know, the Scotland sort of chore of Canadian whiskey. So, you know, Speyside, Highland, Islay, you know, i as we know, a lot of those in Scotland, a lot of those kind of regional differences are a lot of BS anyway. Uh, but if you wanted to give you as somebody uh, a tour of Canadian whiskey in the ranges, what would you, what would your picks be?
1: Well, I, I think you kind of uh, grasped that in your introduction, uh, Mark, in that there's a huge range of flavors within Canadian whiskey. Now we have uh, whiskies like. Uh, uh, well, let, let's take Alberta Distillers, which makes a lot of whiskey using 100% rye. We people have preconceived notions about what rye is going to taste like. But if you taste a whiskey like Alberta Premium, it has virtually zero rye character. It, you can't tell what grain that whiskey's is made from. If, whereas if you taste a whiskey like Canadian Club 100% rye, which again, exactly the same amount of rye in it, You can really taste the spiciness, and you can really taste uh, the qualities of the rice. So, even if we just talk about 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 rye grain whiskey, it um, the range of flavors is really quite large. But if when I'm tasting Canadian whiskey, I like the elegance that you get. These are highly complex but subtle whiskies. They're not. This is not the Coca-Cola of whiskey. This whiskey is really, you you have to warm up to it, you taste it. So, and a part of that, of course, is because we use barrels that have already been used once to make bourbon, we get a lot of the secondary and tertiary flavors coming through. So I look for elegance in these whiskeys. I like a whiskey that finishes with a little bit of bitterness, sort of like the, the grapefruit pith on the whiskey. I like a whiskey that starts with a little bit of, a little bit of caramel, a little bit of toffee, butterscotch, something like that. And then in between, I like to have all the flowers, the lilacs, things like that, the fruits, cherry and some, you know, when you get berries and some, in the older whiskeys, you'll get apple notes and things like that. Some of them you'll have pear notes as well. So really it's, to me, Canadian whiskey, it starts off sweet. It has this range of flowers and fruits it's got this spiciness in the middle and a lot of it has a really hot peppery middle you'll get some cloves and things like this and then uh, at the end it becomes not dry but kind of just just this this cleansing bitterness in your in your uh, on your tongue which kind of makes you want to have another one so uh, that that's uh, that, you know that's sort of where I see Canadian whiskey how I see Canadian whiskey
2: are there are there any um sort of up and coming uh new sort of i know there's new distilleries popping up sort of all over the place is there anything you're sort of especially excited about or any gossip <laughs> <laughs> we love gossip on here if you <laughs> <laughs> we we love to have the the scoop on what the what the best new up-and-coming canadian whiskey is going to be if you're allowed to
1: say it, no, 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 no. I'm just trying. I'm trying to think because there's so much happening right now.
2: It's a bit. Well, yeah, and this is a. This is sort of. I. I feel like, bourbon is sort of. I, we might be coming to a, a moment where it's you know either at its sort of apex and then we're going to see this. Uh, I. I feel like rye is really going to be stepping up uh, in the next little while. It just feels like people are you know uh, bourbon um sorry distilleries that are very well known for putting out bourbons are now introducing rye into their mix and and I think that that's it's sort of the the exciting new thing I went to Dylan's, um and they're they're sitting on some stuff right now um so I think rye is ready to make its um it's big it's going to be you know prom prom queen soon it's going to be in the spotlight. So, yeah, anything, any, any. Well, scoop? Uh, yeah, I, I like what's happening with, with, uh,
1: I like what's happening with, with Canadian rye. I think that, uh, you know, people talk about the rye revolution and the rye renaissance and all this, and they're, they're <laughs> talking about American rye. And uh, what most people don't know is that for every one bottle of American rye sold, 240 bottles of Canadian rye are sold. Canadian rye totally dominates. And the thing with the American rye makers is they'll make rye for 10 days of the year or five days of the year, and the rest of the year they're making bourbon. They don't really, they haven't really mastered uh, making rye on a regular basis. It's a pain in the neck for them. Up here in Canada, we make it every single day. you know. So our distilleries are, are forever making rye. I think that, and you, and you see things like Whistlepig, Canadian rye whiskey, which is really very popular. And, you know, it's, it's driving a lot of the American rye um, revolution. You see things like Masters and Mark, which you love, which, again, doing very well in the States. Because, when the, you know, when you get to the bottom line, they just don't have a whole lot of rye down there. When you look at the sales graphs of, of whiskey sold, American rye sales are so infinitesimally small that they don't even make a blip on the graph They don't even show on the sales graphs, but yet. It's what everyone's talking about. It's a like it's like micro distilleries Everybody's talking about micro distilleries these days, but um, you know like uh, like uh, the guys at Stillwater saying I love their whiskey by the way, you know Hiram Walker spills as much whiskey in a day as we make in a year you know, the, the 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 you know we we can talk about these small distillers and and are truly wonderful products, but they just they just don't register on the sales scale, and I think more I think most of them never will. Some of them will, but I think most of them will end up hoping f- to be bought out by a by a big distiller. <laughs> So uh, you know, so you know, we, it's nice because you can go into a small distillery and you can talk to them and they're friend all this, and they give you all the time of day. But uh, this is just about zero impact on the on Canadian whiskey overall as as it is perceived in the rest of the world. I think the only microdistillery that's really making inroads in the rest of the world is Stillwaters, and they really are. But they, you know those guys are smart they you know they made great whiskey they took their time and uh you know they didn't release it until uh, it tasted like it was ready to go
2: making whiskey is such a crazy investment Mm -hmm. that the longevity of some of the i guess we never we never use the word craft because (laughs) they We're so afraid of somebody being like, well, that's not craft because there is no definition of craft. But these smaller distilleries, the chances of them, like you know, um, like you said, sort of making it, it into like a global stage is it's going to be hard. But I I am interested. Like if I was going to go on a road trip and grab some small distilleries, sort of you would you would probably say Jamie go to Stillwater. Stillwater? Is that right? Stillwater. If, you,
1: if you want to get small, visit small yeah. distilleries, it'll give you good
2: good like whiskey products. Yeah.
1: Go yeah. to yeah, Stillwaters, 66 Gilead. Um, go to uh, uh, Last Mountain in Saskatchewan. Go to uh, Pemberton in BC. Uh... There are others that make whiskey, but I haven't tasted any that really excited me at all.
2: So what you're saying is that my retirement plan of owning a distillery and just sitting in my rocking chair and making whiskey and sitting on some barrels and then just, you know, making a million bucks is probably not a good one to bank on.
1: <laughs> not if you're going to do it in no. Canada. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Go do it in the states where where they support local business, where they support small business. If you try to do it in Canada, they'll they'll uh, you find that there are so many laws about Canadian whiskey that it'll make your head spin. Laws you laws you never heard of, that you won't find out about until some guy from comes along f, f, to inspect your whiskey and says, "Oh, you did you do this 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 and this?" No. Oh. Okay. Well, guess what? You can re-distill it, or you can throw it out. Dang,
2: <laughs> dang to make my own whiskey then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you asked what I was alone. excited
1: about I'll tell you the couple of things that, that do excite me that Canadian club 100% rye I think it's an astronomical move forward to be releasing 100% rye grain whiskey at a price that people can afford and to, and, and to be to be uh, making a 100% rye grain Canadian whiskey that still tastes like Canadian club but that absolutely blows your socks off I'm really excited about Crown Royal, the best-selling Canadian whiskey in the world. Can you believe it? These guys are making single-barrel whiskey, but they're also releasing whiskey that is just 100% of their rye flavoring. It's just a it's a it's a maze called a, a Northern Harvest Rye. It's just these they're, they're, these guys are really innovative. They're coming out with some things. This is the biggest whiskey, and you don't like to use the word craft. But I'm going <laughs> to use nervous. the word craft. Okay, do Here, it. Here's what you want to do. You want to talk to Don Livermore. I know you both know him. He is the master blender at the largest beverage alcohol distillery in North America. Don Livermore makes more beverage alcohol than anybody else in the, on the whole continent, and he is a true craftsman. He is a craftsman like you wouldn't believe. You got to see this guy smelling the corn when it comes in when it's delivered. He smells it with his and you know, it puts it in his hands and smells it. He's smelling every blasted thing. He's tasting it every day. He's got a, he's got tasting panels that are tasting all this all every step of the way they're tasting it blind and he's a guy who will honestly years down the road take take a batch and say, you know what? This is not our quality and he will redistill it. Get rid of it. If you want to see a real craftsman, if you want to see a real craftsman really doing his job, you talk to Don Livermore because that guy he is making finely crafted whiskey beautiful whiskey and the market is telling him that he's doing the right thing because his whiskeys are everyone who tastes this whiskey just raves about it he makes wonderful whiskeys so this business of size has nothing to do with craftsmanship there are a lot of small distillers who really are making crap whiskey crap with a p at the end whiskey (laughs) maybe not so many in canada (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if, as soon as people bring the word size in, you know this has nothing to do with the quality. This is all about getting the market, cornering the market for themselves. Okay, the, There's more craftsmanship in the big distilleries than there is anywhere in... Uh, in, 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 or in many of the small stores now you talk you talk to uh the people at 66 gilead craftsmen again you talk to the people at Stillwaters Craftsman craftsmen again but you talk to this guy now listen don livermore he smells the the waste that comes out of that plant he looks at it to see what color it is and he smells it so he can so he knows what just was put out of the plant the day before it's i'm telling you people who think size have has anything to do with craftsmanship they just don't understand what a craft really is. So uh, I I have zero patience for these guys who try to say if you make more than 50,000 barrels a year you're not a craftsman.
0: Yeah, I I think Don um yeah, I mean, Don uh, Livermore is really the the future of whiskey makers. He's, you know, achieved uh he's got a of science in microbiology. He's completed a uh, a PhD in brewing and distilling, like he, um, it's, this, it's this old world meets new world where you have someone that lo- you know loves whiskey, knows whiskey by instinct and 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 by sense and by taste, um, and then also knows whiskey by through science and education. Um, and and you know, name, I mean, name a distillery, a big distillery right now, and they're they're likely being led by somebody that's a huge. Enormous amount of knowledge in the actual chemistry uh, of making whiskey, but also has that instinct and that sense for being around whiskey. Um, Davin you, you mentioned Don Don Livermore, uh, Doctor Don Livermore, I guess. Yeah, Doctor Don Livermore. I always want to put Ph.D. at the end of every time I say his name. Um, what whiskeys? Um, so, if somebody wants to uh, taste a true, um, like, original of what he's brought to the market, because um, also a relatively young guy, right? He hasn't been doing this for very long um at, at
1: his position currently that is as a master blender um i celebrated his 18th year in the business with him and we toasted with a whiskey that was made on his first day as a whiskey maker yes, Listen, yes he's got a, he's got a lot of education and training there's no question about that but what he really brings to it is he's got the perfectionist personality of an artist and he honestly he, he, he 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 just it just has to be right it can't be good enough it has to be right and this is why this is real craftsmanship now if you want to taste the some of the of the Wiser's whiskeys that are being brought out nowadays you will taste uh, Dr. Don's signature on these new wood he's using a lot more new wood you taste the uh, 2012 red letter or the 2011 red letter you taste um, taste uh, uh, Wiser's legacy. Washer Legacy was, was developed by, by David Doyle and Don together, but it's Don's Whiskey now. You taste lot number 40. Don really has got his signature all over lot number 40. Taste Pike Creek. T- taste the Canadian version of Pike Creek and the American version of Pike Creek. You can't they're 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 wonderful whiskeys They're these are whiskeys that he's got his signature on and believe me they are really good why the new weiser's 18 year old that's getting more towards dr don's whiskey a lot of that is still uh, still david doyle's whiskey but yeah the, but uh, yeah if you taste the, the new corby's products the new weiser's products you're tasting don livermore's work and uh, take a whiskey like weiser's legacy honestly what more could you want? It's to me, to me. you don't want 100% rye. You want a lot of rye, but not too much. He's got a third of that whiskey is made from rye uh, spirit. And it's got corn in it, which gives it the body, the feel. It feels wonderful in your mouth. He rounds it out with a bit of barley whiskey. It's just a, a wonderful whiskey. That's a whiskey, Mark, that you can drink sitting by the pool when it's warm. And not feel guilty about putting an ice cube in it because it's not expensive, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you don't want to put an ice cube in your Mastersons because you don't want to cool it down. But so you know that's so you drink your Mastersons on the on the cold days and drink your Wiser's Wiser's Legacy every other day of the week. Those are great whiskeys.
0: I, I love that you said that because on the very first episode of this podcast, we were doing a test between uh, ice cubes straight or uh, warmed up glasses and. And um, I I ended up taking a uh, Masterson's and putting an ice cube in it and it made me very sad. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: (laughs) All all for the purpose of science,
1: but it still (laughs) made me very sad. You were using warmed glasses?
0: Well, we were doing, uh, we were hand warming one glass. We had uh, like room temperature for a second glass and then a glass with ice. So so we had it like three different ways at three different temperatures. How
1: did that hand warming work out for you?
0: uh not great on either of the whiskies i
1: had Um, it doesn't work on any whiskey here's what happens when you warm whiskey in your hand you'll warm the whiskey in your hand and you'll get a wonderful bouquet the nose is really good for a few seconds but then all of those chemicals that have evaporated are gone and the whiskey in the glass is flat as can be you know the way they distill whiskey every different component of that whiskey distills at a different temperature evaporates at a different temperature and when you put your hand on that glass and warm it up, some of the really light, beautifully flavorful elements of the whiskey evaporate right out of the glass into the nose. It smells wonderful, but they're gone. You can smell them, but you will never taste them again because they're gone, they're in the room. Warming the glass in your hand is a, it's, it's a wonderful bar trick to make any whiskey smell great. But if you're drinking the whiskey because you enjoy whiskey, Really all you 're doing is ruining a beautiful dram
0: it 's lovely that you said that because I wrote an article about like uh, glassware swirling and and all this other stuff around around this topic, and I thought I was being quite dramatic because I said you know once you swirl that glass and, and all the everything evaporates it 's gone it 's gone forever. you will never taste that flavor again it 's just gone and um, and I thought I was being very dramatic about that i'm I'm glad to hear somebody else use the same very dramatic tone of like once those flavors of spirits gone um and and I and the only reason why like warming the glass may can make sense if you're constantly tasting that liquid because it does change, and some people I usually say if you if you want to water down your your whiskey, maybe warm it first, see how. It changes when you warm it. Maybe it'll it'll calm it a little bit. Mm. Um, but yeah, either way, swirling, warming, it's gone. Jamie, yeah. there you go. Jamie, very dramatic. We're Gav and I are being I, very dramatic about this. But once it evaporates, it's gone. The I flavor's gone.
2: It's so funny how many people, when I go to an event, uh, tell me to swirl, and I can't get behind. I just can't get behind it. Now that I've, I just. Uh, I can't get behind it. I can't. You can't swirl get behind is... it.
1: Do you know what the benefit of swirling? Swirling is fantastic for getting everybody to look at you. But I'll tell you, what's the point? You know, swirling. You're, you know, it, the wine people—they have to swirl their wine in their glass because then they look at the legs. Okay. That's right. Legs don't work in whiskey. Someone who tells you no. to look at the legs in whiskey doesn't understand how glass is made. Whiskey is at <laughs> least whiskey is at least forty percent alcohol. Right. There are about twelve different chemicals that are used to make glass and they're used in different proportions depending on the quality of the glass some of this glass is slippery like crazy to to alcohol some of it is sticky like crazy to alcohol so you swirl the whiskey in the glass you say oh those are wonderful long legs well it means the glass is sticky and you swirl the same whiskey in a different glass and say gee it has no legs at all what happened well you're using a glass that's it's a different quality of glass now with with wine which is only you know eight nine ten twelve maybe fourteen percent alcohol you don't get that same kind of reaction so when someone tells you you can look at the legs of the whiskey unless all unless you're comparing different whiskeys and you're using identical glasses which were all made at the same in the same plant at the same time it's it's just uh, it's just it's pointless but it does attract attention it's the same with heating the glass in your hand it's a great way of getting people to look at you they think oh he must really know what he's doing he's warming the glass that's yeah, a bunch of it's a bunch of crap. All you're doing is making your whiskey taste flat. But uh, and if I guess if you keep doing it, it just shows you don't have much of a palate. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that's that's my take on those things. But I just I just love this this business with you know when I learned how glass was made and how glasses were made, that you know even if the same the same gla- I don't use Glen Cairns. I use the perfect dram. I use the Glen Cairn Canadian whiskey glass, which I think is a wonderful glass with an ice cube. Wonderful, fantastic. But I got some glasses that were made in a different plant and I could see, wow, you know, th- th- these glasses are just not the same. They look identical, but they're not the same. And I learned, I actually it was the guys from Glencairn who told me about how the glasses are made and they all, you know, that each batch will be a little bit different. You know, it's like whiskey. <clears throat> and it depends, you know, where they got the chemicals from that they used to make that, uh, that whiskey. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, glassware glassware. I like a, I like a glass that is pinched at the nose and has lots of room inside so you can get a lot of vapors in it without having them evaporate right away. That's what I like. That's what I like about the Glencairn whiskey glass, the Canadian whiskey glass too, is that you can put a big drink in that and it's still pinched at the nose so you can you can taste the flavor on that. But uh, anyway, so that's my take on uh, on glassware.
0: This is um it's it's a very it's very much a recurring theme of the podcast as we talk about whiskey is glassware. Um Mark it, gets it really very is very
2: dramatic about glassware. <laughs> I, I do. I get I
0: get very dramatic about glassware. Oh do yes. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why well, do glassware? And,
2: yeah. I, I read swirling. a whole article about
0: the uh, conspiracy theory of why Knopf Creek was won over Booker's in, in San Francisco it was all because of glassware. It had nothing to do with it being a better drink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, come on, Knopf Creek over Booker's? Who uh, picks that? Come on. That's... It's a great drink, but it's not as good as Booker's.
1: <laughs> well, you know, oh, you taste good. these whiskeys blind, you sometimes have a very different impression and it's, it's really quite uh, quite a learning experience, especially... Judging a competition. What a wonderful learning experience. Um, I used to do the Malt Maniacs Awards every year, and afterwards they publish all your scores. So there's pressure. And not only that, but there are a few bottles in there that are in there twice. So you get to taste the same thing different times. And see how we, you know, just make sure that your scores are on. So it's really quite, uh, quite illuminating. And I know I did a tasting in uh, in New York last year, uh, with uh, a number of really well. Some, there were some nice Mortlocks in there, but there were also some beautiful Johnny Walker blends in there. And I'll tell you, the blend won hands down at Whiskey Fest in New York because uh, that's uh, Johnny Walker Black is what everybody liked the best, even though those Mortlocks were so fantastic. And there were some others in there. I can't remember some other single malts as well. When you taste it blind and you have no uh, information about what you're tasting, it re- you really let your tongue do all the work on that. And it's just uh, it's a different experience altogether. Uh, judging is daunting, especially if you know they're going to publish all your scores. So uh, it's not something I would rush into. But... Uh, just the same, it's uh, it's a great way to learn about whiskey.
2: Sounds really intimidating to me.
1: Yeah, daunting. It's yeah. just it really. I'm telling you, you send your scores and you think, oh,
2: sweating. Yeah.
1: Just <laughs> and then you please tell me what I did, and then they, yeah, afterwards it's all fine.
0: <laughs> oh, J- Jamie and I were stressed out just by uh, we were doing a blind tasting of um, uh, of Knob Creek versus Booker's, and we were just stressed out about that because we're like we we did it like as a live podcast, so we. um uh, we were doing it blind and recording notes and everything else. That was stressful alone. I, I feel like, we, yes. especially because we mixed up and we thought we were disagreeing on everything, but it turns out that um, that we had just mixed up the randomizing process and we were agreeing <laughs> the whole time.
1: Well, not everybody's <laughs> going to like the same whiskey. Some people. Yeah. No, no, one. no. Some but but I think this one, up.
0: this one, we were very agreed on. Jamie and I were very agreed on no what big. we would like, and we
1: were just yeah. All right,
0: there we go. <laughs> yeah. Glassware, Jamie. I know. Glassware. I
2: know. It's right. Glassware. Oh, no,
1: it's so good. Well, so I'm really good. enjoying this Forty Creek three grain. Thanks for yeah, getting me to okay. get it out. What a great whiskey.
0: I, I've never tasted it, so now I'm very curious. Know, um, me too. But most of Forty Creek is three grain, right? So this is more, this is, I guess, more of an original release because yeah. every Forty Creek has
1: three grains in it, right? Uh, yeah, at least three grains. This was one of the, <laughs> he released this one in Barrel Select, and uh, just to see which would do the best in the marketplace. Barrel Select took off, so this one was discontinued. It's really, really great whiskey. It's Now, the Forty Creek factor, so that's a, this is a good uh, t-
0: a topic. So you mentioned this because we had a back and forth uh, for an article I was researching for. Um, the Forty Creek factor, can you describe that to us? And I don't actually know if you coined that or not. Was that a this phrase that you said or was it a phrase that somebody else said?
1: Um- either i coined it or blair phillips coined it i can't remember who when we we work together on uh, we have a series in whiskey magazine that we do together and by the time those articles are finished they're often they're written in one voice or the other but it's so much a joint project that uh, it's hard to tell who said what but anyways, one of us coined the term 40 creek factor the 40 creek factor john hall really kind of put respectability back into uh, the average person's conception of Canadian whiskey. He brought out these really wonderful whiskies, and he he personally walked door to door, you know, selling his whiskey to, to bartenders. I was on Bourbon Street last uh, summer, and I went every bar. I went to every bar on Bourbon Street, and I think maybe two or three did not have Forty Creek in the well. They all are serving Forty Creek whiskies, And he did this, he did this all over Texas. He went to the big Canadian whiskey markets and he pounded the pavement. What he used to do is he used to sit uh, in the bar till it was closed, and then he'd pour the whiskey for the bartenders, pour his whiskey for the bartenders. And you know, the way the bartenders often will all get together from the different bars, he'd pour his whiskeys and get them to taste it. And uh, and so he really, he pounded the pavement for 20, well, for 10 years, really, getting his, making his whiskey well known. And uh, so he really, you know, got people talking about Canadian whiskey. He got, he got people talking about um, how good Canadian whiskey was. And, uh, it's kind of encouraged this resurgence that came along. And so, uh, yeah, I I think that uh, Canadian whiskey is better known in more respectable whiskey circles uh, because of of John Hall, because of a guy like John Hall. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, you know, the the whiskey, the, the, the industry was really kind of moribund. You know, there was, because Canadian whiskey just, it just sells and sells and sells and sells. They may not have had the same kind of incentive to really, really be innovative. And, you know, when I say that, I I mean, there are so many fantastic Canadian whiskeys that were available only in Canada. But um, because he got everyone talking about it, you know, p- people start to sit up and, and you know, and they saw his, I mean, they, they, people laughed at him in the beginning, but they saw his sales just getting better and better and better and better and better and better. And they said, holy cow, there's something happening here. So um, yeah, I think that he had, I think he played a, a huge role in the resurgence of high-end Canadian whiskey. And that's where the growth is in, in the Canadian whiskey market. It's all at the high end. It's all the expensive stuff that's, that's doing well and selling well now. Or the, yeah. where the and- growth is.
0: That's an excellent example. Forty Creek, uh, just even their, their base whiskey is a great example of uh, where um, the lack of regulation or the openness of the Canadian whiskey industry really gives you a lot of freedom. So uh, Forty Creek, um, their base like bottom shelf whiskey is not – not- cheap. It's it's in that $30 price point, $25, $30 price point. Uh, by American standards, it's not cheap. By Canadian standards, it's a great price. Um, but the the whiskey has is basically made of give or take, you know, I'm using a roundabout, but a third corn, a third barley, and a third rye. And it's aged separately in barrels. Uh, each barrel is charred differently based on the grain that's used and uh, blended together um, aged seven to eight years, give or take. Um, But really, this is a whiskey that would never be possible in the United States. It would never work because it wouldn't be called a rye. It wouldn't be called a bourbon. It wouldn't be called a malt. Like It doesn't doesn't come to any sort of classification that in the United States would be listed as a marketable term. If you can't call it a bourbon or a rye, it's not going to sell very well. Um, but because it's a Canadian whiskey, it comes down and because of the aging process and the blending that happens before bottling, uh, it's, it's a very complex, very affordable drink that just gives you a lot of different flavors, um, and a lot of different balances. So there's the, the, the regular Forty Creek, there's the, the copper, uh, pot still Forty Creek that gives you a little bit now, Dan, you may have to correct me, the copper gives you a little bit more rye notes. I think
1: you can taste more rye, but you can, well, you can taste more spice, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah
0: yeah you can taste more spice in the copper so um, but great example of the freedom in not having those heavy regulations on how to make whiskey
1: yeah they could make their whiskey that way if they wanted I mean Seagram 7 is a perfect example of an American whiskey made the Canadian way and it's a hugely popular whiskey in the United States You know, so they, they, they can do that and they can sell the whiskey but they can't call it bourbon or rye but you know they call it they call it whiskey, and people people love Seagram Seven, and but uh, you know it's American whiskey, but it's it's made the Canadian way.
0: No, yeah, that's a, a a great point. I mean, that's actually a good point. I mean, Canadians could legally make bourbon like exactly identical whiskey, but they they don't, which is interesting. Um, yeah,
1: actually, we cannot make bourbon, in can we can't call it bourbon? We can't call it bourbon because no. you know we we gave away the right to call our whiskey bourbon. In Canada, we make a lot of bourbon, but we don't call it that and we don't sell it as that. I think um, I'm trying to think if I can tell you a whiskey that Canadian whiskey that has a lot of Canadian bourbon in it, probably better not to. But uh, yeah, we, we make, we make a Canadian uh, we make bourbon here. We always did. But when we we used to supply a lot of the American bourbon makers with bourbon, by the way, a lot of American bourbon was made in Canada because they were had such short supply um, in the years following prohibition, following the Second World War, and so on. But uh, it, you know, we we don't do that anymore. But uh, yeah, um, we can't call it Canadian. Uh, we can't call it uh, bourbon anymore. We gave up that right. We do call our whiskey rye very legitimately. Call it rye because in Canada we we make our whiskey differently. And so the rye has a lot more impact. Rye spirit has a lot more impact than rye grain. You know, rye grain makes about six percent spirit, whereas um, you know corn may maybe make fourteen percent spirit or something like that. So when you put a mash bill, the rye just gets washed out unless you got a lot of it in there. Whereas in Canada, where we distill the rye separately, you're using you know the, the rye, the full impact of the rye is uh, is uh, is there. So we call our whiskey rye quite legitimately. You know, Canadian whiskey is Canadian rye in Canada the word rye means whiskey Um, I know until the the whole foods movement came along people didn't even know that rye was a grain now they're fanatical about it It has to be you know this percentage rye and well you know percentage of what percentage of the grain or percentage of the spirit you know it's uh, it's quite different things the other thing of course is that in the states they the enzymes they use to ferment their mashes are specific to corn so the rye is the, the the corn starch outcompetes the rye starch in any case, to, for conversion. So yeah, it's a, it's a different thing altogether. So uh, yes, they can make Canadian style whiskies down there. They some places they do, and some of them are are very successful. Um, so it's uh, I, I'm I'm really I I really think these definitions have been the value of these definitions have been grossly uh, over inflated by marketing people who are trying to make the best of a bad thing.
0: Well, can you um, can you explain the um, that uh, the differences with rye between uh, American rye and Canadian rye and the grains used and that uh, just, you know, kind of take a step back with between spirit and and everything else? Can you take a step back and explain that uh, the differences there?
1: Well, the grains used it's kind of that. That's a, that's a popular place to start for people who, a, use a mash bill, and b, are forced to use brand new oak because, of course, brand new oak overwrites most of the grain flavor anyway. Um, it, it's a little bit. It's a different process altogether in Canada, where we where we distill the individual grains separately and we mature them in ways that emphasize the qualities of the individual grain. So in Canada, rye whiskey is whiskey that has flavors in it, such as, well, eugenol, for example, which is the, the clove flavor. This is a typical signature note that you get in rye grain. It's also something that you find in second and third fill bourbon barrels. You don't get that in the new bourbon barrels because the, the car there's so much caramel in a, in a bourbon in a new oak barrel that it, it completely obliterates the, the secondary and tertiary flavors. But uh, So it, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. Because we make the individual grains separately and we blend so that each grain expresses, has an opportunity to express itself, um, where, whereas in, in the states where they're making rye, they throw all the grains together and they just, you know, What happens, happens, and uh, it comes out. It's a very different process. Um, It's, uh, let me think, how how do I put this? In Canada, rye whiskey originated when, when all of the whiskey in Canada was made using wheat. We think Canadian whiskey was always made with corn. It's not true. We couldn't even grow corn in Canada until about the 1950s. It was always wheat. Now rye was not a popular grain crop even in the beginning. Rye they used rye to open a field up because it grows anywhere. But wheat is what the farmers were growing. And the whiskey makers were making whiskey out of wheat. Some people said, Well, if you throw some, some rye in there, you'll get more flavor. We did it, and suddenly about two hundred, a little more than two hundred years ago, we started to call our whiskey rye, because when people went to buy their whiskey, they said, well, I'd like to buy some whiskey, please, and give me the rye. Meaning meaning don't give me the wheat.
2: This for me has been really exceptional. I've learned a lot in the last uh, hour that uh, I definitely don't think I would have had the chance to, if Davin, if you hadn't been here, that's great. Well, isn't that
1: flattering? You know, (laughs) Mark, you were talking about the grains and, and how the grains contribute. And I, I rem, I'm reminded of something that Dr. Don says all the time. <laughs> Don't ask how much rye, ask how it's distilled. And uh, if you want to take my the example I used earlier, Alberta Premium, which is 100% rye, but just does not in any remote way taste like rye whiskey, American rye whiskey. If you want to take that and compare that with A bottle like, well, Collingwood 21 Rye Whiskey, or Canadian Club 100% Rye, which really emphasizes the rye. Now, you can talk about the rye grain, and this is something easy for consumers to understand. However, there's a a whole lot more that goes into making rye. There's the the selection of the barrels, there's the use of new wood, and things like this. So uh, uh, yeah, there's more to it than just making rye. Now, you say you've learned a lot, Jamie. Let me give you a piece of advice. Avoid Please. Scotland for as long as you possibly can because go, you'll go over there and they'll tell you how things are made. And uh, it's so simplistic. It's, it, it doesn't serve you well because then you think you know how whiskey's made. And it, really, go on the bourbon trail. Learn I love
2: how, the bourbon trail, it's my favorite.
1: Learn how whiskey's really made. And uh, it's, uh, it's a very different thing. And the other piece of advice I'd give new people
0: mm-hmm.
1: never, ever, ever read Wikipedia. It is so wrong.
2: <laughs> so, where should we go instead?
1: Go to a book. Read Dave Broom. Oh, of course, you have to buy my book. But go to. Well, I
2: was going to say. I was going to say, like, <laughs> obviously. Yeah,
1: well, look, you know, buy the buy Canadian whiskey, the portable expert. But no, seriously, Dave Broom's World Atlas of Whiskey is a fantastic book, and I think, frankly, if I'm going to be Honest, Mark, I think your book is a pretty good, darn good place for people to start as well. I, I like that, uh, that book. I, I've read it, and I think it's very approachable, and it's really good if people really want to get a good overview of whiskey and how it's made. So uh, I think, you know, you've got uh, two authors here who can contribute to your whiskey knowledge, say. and Dave Broom is absolutely, he is the number one whiskey writer in the world without question. There's nobody even comes close to him.
0: He's just so much background knowledge and history oh, in his yeah. books. It's it's really incredible. And um and and Davin, your book on um where flavor comes from in whiskey and how you taste whiskey, and that 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 to me is my favorite chapter of your book. Your, your book is excellent. Um, but that I've never seen the deconstruction of whiskey and flavors as in depth as um, I have in Canadian whiskeys. So that's a fantastic, uh, fantastic book. Definitely recommend it.
1: Well, thanks for saying that. I got that all from Vicky Miller who makes black velvet. She explained that to me and, and she and she did not ever get exasperated. So uh I have to thank her for that.
2: <laughs> That's great. I was gonna say I'm yeah. sitting I'm sitting on here as like a newbie with like two authors. It's like it's pretty pretty good to be here, guys. It's good. It's mm-hmm. good. Just learning as much as I can.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, just trust your nose, because you—what you smell mm-hmm. is actually really there. You can't be wrong.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if—if if, I guess if I was going to learn about something new, whiskey would probably be the best one.
0: Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no that i think the um and i think you know it does come down to what your preferences are um but but you have to stay step away from the labels and well i don't have to actually screw it if you want if you love labels go for it i mean i think we all uh we all have our favorite pair of jeans that we wear because of the label right um uh, but i think it's um which is why we constantly promote blind tasting just bl- taste your whiskey blind as, as best as possible and um and and Get an idea for what you really like. You mentioned Johnny Walker earlier, um, mm-hmm. Johnny Walker Black. Um, really great whiskey. It just Isn't it? Every time. Um, every time. It's such a fantastic go-to whiskey that um, probably doesn't get as much credit as it deserves mm-hmm. because it's everywhere. Um, literally had it on the plane on a flight to Austin. I'm like, this is great. Mm-hmm. This is perfect.
1: Yeah. It's, Charlie, it's what uh, you needed on the plane. Charlie yeah. McLean told me it was his favorite whiskey, but he, oh, he told me not to tell anybody.
0: i don't think i'm gonna edit that part out Devin. i I gotta tell you i I knew you wouldn't (laughs) listen i've had a
1: thunderbolt and two three grains you can i'll say anything you want me to
2: (laughs) so maybe we should start the podcast after we've had drinks maybe that's how we should start doing it maybe we should be like (laughs) we've we've already had these whiskeys we're not sipping them while we're podcasting we've already drank them and let's see how it goes everybody no, it's good. It's good. It's good. All good. Don't do that. Um, it's a
0: bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible idea. Don't, don't do it. Um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, david for coming on board on the podcast. I know this whole podcasting thing is is, is new, but um, as for you, I really appreciate you. Yeah, um, thank you. Going through the process of
1: launching QuickTime and other things. <laughs> <laughs> I'll not be able to do that again. So if we ever talk again, you'll have to help me again. Thank you for having me, Mark and Jamie. I really I really enjoyed it. What a it was great such a pleasure. It. What a great conversation.
2: It was great. It was it's I learned so much, you guys. This was great. Awesome. So
0: thank you very much for joining. Jamie, thank you as always. Davin, thank you so much for coming on board. We'll talk to you guys next week.